This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today my guest on Off the Shelf is Tom Sisti. Tom is the Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. Um, Tom, first of all, welcome back to the show. It's been quite a while. Yeah, I guess you've uh, reached the bottom of the barrel on guests, and you're back to me. Well, Tom, you read my mind. <laughs> you know exactly where it's coming from. You um, know, actually, um, it's always good to have you on the show periodically, just talk about where things are in the procurement system. And I think we're kind of reaching an inflection point, I think, in the procurement system, you know, in terms of... Um, where we are with sort of the re-regulation, the reprocification, I guess. I don't know if that's a word uh, of the procurement system. And with all the focus on access to the industrial base and the impact on the defense industrial base and access to innovation from the commercial market, um, there's a lot of talk about this, but there's, there's clearly opportunities and areas where things need to and can be adjusted to increase that access and bring greater value for money. Um, and I think we'll talk about those today. So, um, Tom, one of the, you know, one of the things that the coalition actually highlighted, you know, in a blog, you know, July, uh, just last week was, uh, uh, major general Holt's, um, presentation at the government contracting pricing summit out in California. That was, you know, in the middle of June, um, it's available on YouTube. Um, we will probably link it to this show after we get done mm-hmm. uh, when we post it on the Federal News website. And it's just a powerful discussion of the procurement system, where we are versus near peer adversaries and what's it mean for you know our national defense. And uh, I know you took a close examination of it, watched it. Um, it was quite compelling. And I want to get your impressions of it. Well, I'll tell you, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more on where we are right now. It's, uh, you know, we are, what is it, Procurement Groundhog Day. It's we're going through the same cycle of, of re-regulation um, that uh, we were in probably back in the 80s uh, when we started with SECA, remember, Competition and Contracting. Yep. Yep. And then, uh, you know, you move forward and, uh, and, and we had an abundance of clauses that impeded uh, commercial acquisition that slowed down the process, and uh, that brought us uh, to to FASA, which emphasized streamlining and taking these things out, uh, trying to reduce the the administrative burden on on government personnel and contractors, at least in the sphere of commercial contracting, trying to mimic to the best you can, given that it is the government, the practices and processes of the federal government and utilize um, the the private sector where you can you in the sphere of commercial item acquisition so, um, so Tom what did you know what did Cameron hold what was you know, I'm, getting there. I'm getting there okay, well, you're getting there. okay all right so when you look at that that's where we we came from with all of this acquisition reform 
And here we are at, at, at a point in time. And I think uh, General Holt really, really captured it so well at the summit. It, it is, I don't think we can recommend uh, strong, more strongly that people go to YouTube and listen to this talk. Uh, you know, from a systemic standpoint, I think he was talking about the same bureaucratic process delays that inject time and, and cost into the acquisition cycle. Um, and and at the same time, he, he raised a point that I think is very challenging because it re- really re- requires a look at the operations of another branch of government. Okay. And that's uh, the whole appropriations process, how, how monies are tied to programs. And in a time where you have very rapid technological um, evolution cycles, uh, you need to move quickly. And I think uh, on an agency level, it's very hard because we're in cycles. We're in, you know, this, this kind of pattern of budget program identification and then return to the budget cycle where during, between these two, I don't know, apexes or the up and down of this, you have, you have changes going on the need to get rid of a program or the need to, uh, to modify a program. And, and they're really from a, a program implementation standpoint, there's a need for flexibility. So that was, that was a, a very key. Okay, so you're ta- are you saying, you know, from a funding perspective, <laughs> providing greater flexibility through the appropriations, whether it's, you know, multi-year funding or, you know, just in terms of the purpose of the funding, that to try to execute the program, you know, at the end of the day, it all boils down to money, right? If you got the money, you know, it's just a question how you can use the money and how much time you have to use the money. Is that right? Fundamentally what you're talking about? How you use it, uh, your flexibility in using it. And I think the the number of times uh, you can go back and in, in, in between the approval processes um, really inform and get changes implemented so that, or repurpose the money so that it can respond um, through program implementation. And, you know, why? The big question is why in all of this. And the why is because unlike before, when we were doing this for this kind of esoteric goal of bringing efficiency into the system, we have an existential threat. And he, he talks about that threat. Uh, it, it's, it, it primarily is China. And I, I mean, he offered a really stark uh, statement about where we are. He said that he, in his view, China is about five to six times faster than we are in acquisition and in purchasing power parity. We yeah. invest 20 bucks for their one dollar. Right. Right. All right. And so when you think about that, that's that's an enormous breaking point for us. So we have to spend more. And I'm, I, you know, one thing that wasn't clear from that discussion, it'd be interesting to look at, is that $20 direct or d- does it include indirect? Because you could argue that the indirect cost of acquisition, the amount of delay, the amount of personnel in- involved in um, the compliance checklist process, if you think about it, where, okay, I have to do this, I have to do this. We have people running to script, if you will, based on our laws that govern um, the oversight of, of procurement. Um, do I am I engaging in duplicative practices? I mean, it gets really, really burdensome, and we cannot sustain that. Yeah, in that power parity. 
so what he was saying is that it costs a, 20 times more for us. Yes, essentially. And it takes five to six times longer for us. I mean, mm-hmm. even if, you know, even if, which is probably true, we start ahead of the game in terms of capability, over time, those numbers mean inevitably they're going to surpass our capabilities. Well, yeah, they produce, right. they, they're floating more ships than we do. Their Navy's bigger. They, they, you know, we, we start a project and we, we have a, a, a metho- methodology that's, that's rooted back in, into the middle of the last century. And it's, it's, it's not sustainable when you need to evolve your technology, when your technology evolves itself, what's Moore's law, like 18 months or something. So, I mean, think about how many time, how many iterations of your iPhone you have right now out right. there compared to the one you bought. It's just amazing. That's so getting, but getting back, circling back to the money side of it, you know, the greater flexibility, but the reason you don't have greater flexibility in terms of time and purpose is because of, you know, the congressional imperative for control, right? You know, the power of the purse and through appropriations is how you, you in a certain sense, sense set the priorities for, right? You set in the priorities for, for the government and, you know, as the, you know, as the legislative branch, that's kind of there. I don't see that changing, you know, fundamentally. Well, it can't change. It's it's a it's a, it's, required, it's the constitutional authority of the legislative branch, power of the purse. But it can be implemented in a more efficient way. I think is the argument is that you could you could have more repeated contact, you could have more engagement so that when you see a hiccup, you get rid of it. Also, there are political pressures, and I think he went into, we don't need to go into them, but, you know, if uh, a given project means something in a given region, that, that could right. spark That's true. Yeah. engagement, you know, so, it, it and you can't get rid of programs that you need to get rid of. So, I mean, there are a whole host of issues that are attendant to this, Right. And right there is where we have to stop, Tom, because when we come back, we can talk about some of those issues and also continue to sort of examine some of the high the themes that Major General Holt identified in his talk. Um, again, a pretty compelling conversation about the state of procurement and, you know, and in the business of government in so many senses. My guest today is Tom Sistes, executive vice president and General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Tom Sisti. Tom is Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. Um, and we're talking about um, the procurement system generally and you know the re-regulation of it, the barriers to entry, what does it mean for the industrial base, and we've been in the first segment, we talked to Fairmont about uh, Major General Cameron Holtz, the head of acquisition at the Air Force, which I don't think we mentioned in the in the last segment. So to clarify his role and what he does, um, his presentation to the Government Contracting Pricing Summit uh, in California back in June. Um, and it really, I think the theme, and I want to get your thoughts on the theme of his talk is really, how, you know, making it. Creating sound business outcomes or opportunities for sound business outcomes, creating an environment where people want to do business with the government, and really, so in almost in a certain sense, getting back to basics. What is that? What you you know got most out of this out of his presentation? 
Well, I think so. I think with respect to the funding, um, you know, you can't, uh, you have to, you have to understand that funding is taking place in a context. And when a, a business attempts to uh, submit a proposal for a program and then um, it, it uh, it's accepted and they engage their employees and they start working on a program. Um, you can't assume that if it, it, it's carved into neat seg- segments where profitability exists in an equal way in each segment. So, you know, the profitability, you might achieve profitability at the end point. And if there isn't a certainty, some element of certainty, uh, about reaching those stages of a, of a program where profitability can obtain, it it could serve as a market barrier for firms entering. I mean, we've done blogs on this where uh, we've talked about how we, we are seeing a, a bit of an exit from the government marketplace of uh, not only uh, large businesses, but small businesses. And so you have to say, what are we, what barriers are we putting up in the federal marketplace, are have have we erected so much? We, we talked a lot about financing, but have we erected so much process that we've made the environment inhospitable to people who want to do business with the government? And you might say, well, too bad. But uh, remember, the government relies on the industrial base. Um, many of these companies, the government... Uh, certainly there are companies where the government is their main source of business, but a, a lot of the companies, especially the non-traditional companies, commercial companies, the bulk of their revenue, significant bulk of their revenue is outside the government space. So in a way, right. if you want access to that innovation, uh, you're going to have to create an environment where at least it's, it's familiar to those types of firms that the processes are familiar. Cause remember again, unlike in, you know, the last century, in this century, there is a near peer player, at least one, two or two, who um, have the capacity to access that technology if they're not producing that technology. And it represents challenge for the country if it cannot create an environment where people who have that technology can bring it to the government and the government can utilize it. You know, I, I don't know. At the end of the day, Tom, isn't it? It just doesn't. I mean, it's we're talking. I mean, how do you squeeze out of the process? It it takes too much time and it costs too much money for, for you know, the private sector to do business with the federal government. That's the, that's the I mean, we're talking about improving business environments. We, he, at the end of the day, isn't Cameron Holt talking about reducing the time because time is money and then reducing you know, it's just the overall cost of operating in the federal market. Is that fundamentally what we're talking about here? It is, but it's uh, you could start by reducing duplication. I mean, let, let's go into this for a minute. Remember, at, at the time FASA was passed, what did what did we have? Eight, six, or eight contract clauses that applied to commercial item contracts. Correct. Yes. Now, how many do we have now? What, a hundred, hundred twenty, something? Well, you can look at it this way. There's like when they passed FASA, um, there were. Um, you know, and they put implemented commercial item contracting. I think there were 10, 28 total potential clauses that could apply. Six were required, right? And the other 22, you know, were optional or dependent on you know, the nature of what you were buying. 
Okay, you fast forward to today, there's 34, 35, I think, right. that are required. So what's that, a 500% increase in the number right. of required? And then there's another 60 or so clauses that are um, optional and could be included just depending on the nature of the work. That's that's like re-regulation. Uh, you know, it's the, I like to say it's a slow, painful death over the last three decades since they created commercial item contracting, the slow, painful death of commercial item contracting. Yeah, it's, you know, a good image for it is you, uh, you, you launch something into the air and it's, it's, it's going out into the outer atmosphere and then the force of gravity finally pulls it back and we're, we're moving backwards to the same processes that existed at the time of the reform movements, notwithstanding that those reform movements are, are embodied in statute. It's, um, so, so you have to say, what did we do wrong? Uh, you know, did we, did we allow too much flexibility for adding this? I mean, people. Uh, so mean, it's just, I think what it is, you know, part of it, and we're, we're, you know, moving off of, I guess, Major General Holtz, and we're still talking about the same themes, but just, I think part of the problem is just thinking about, and FASA, that, you know, the there's, provisions provided to, well, there might be situations where it might be necessary to apply something, you know, to commercial item contracting. So they had a process, right, where, you know, OFPP and the FAR Council could make determinations to apply something, right? Right. right. So, and that's just turned into a rubber stamp. Let's be honest, Frank, over the last 25 years, it's just a rubber stamp that, they, oh, this uh, we have to. And I don't know if it's political in nature, you know, and or with a small P or just the nature of the bureaucracy that this happens. That And maybe maybe there was there, there should have been in retrospect. And I know you worked on FASA and all that stuff when you were up on the hilltop. You know, maybe there should have been a, a, a higher bar for that, you know opt in to apply things to commercial item contracting that than what was ultimately put in statute. You wouldn't have gotten the language. I mean, it was just, it was right. balanced. All right. Yeah. So that's, that, that was the challenge. But now we can, we can Monday morning quarterback or, you know, tw- you know, do 21st century, co- you know, <laughs> quarterbacking, right. If yeah. we could do it over. If, but, if you could do it over, would it, would it get through though is the question. Right. I mean, it, it, you either have faith in the, in what motivated the provisions or you don't. What motivated those provisions, frankly, was a belief that, look, for the st- from the standpoint of commercial items, and let's take out of it the whole concern about cyber for a moment. You know, the, the system felt that leveraging the research and innovation expenditures and the, the the robust manufacturing capacities of the commercial market would free up taxpayer dollars to use on things that are government unique, things that blow up, let's say. And that, that understanding framed in the context of competitive proposals really cut down your concern about all your, your concern then became, am I getting what I, I, they said they got, which you have on every contract. Um, now we have the cyber concern, of course, but 
your concerns about what I'm, I'm, I'm paying the fair and reasonable price and everything else, you have market competition driving that price down. Um, you have, you're setting out your requirements, uh, hopefully in, in commercial terms, conditions. Okay. Um, and, and, and the, the market itself is giving you what you need. Um, we seem to not trust what we did as, as, as a system. It's like, yeah, that was good, but let's just get this other audit in there. That's good. Right. Let's just do the, you know, and I think we're, we're getting to a point where we're choking the system. Plus the procurement system, as you know, is, is a vehicle for many, many different things that, that some would argue are non-procurement. Right. You know, I remember Tom Davis when he was, you know, on the Hill and, you know, basically his, he was a purist about the procurement system that, you know, its job was to acquire the goods and services, you know, for, to support the federal mission, you know, as opposed to some of the other things that are included in it. But those things, you know, it's like uh, go to another procurement, you know, icon, John Etherton, who says, we have the system we want, which it has all these exactly things. Right. That's exactly it's right. your point. It's a balance of all these things. So there is, by its very nature of the government, going to be policy aspects of the procurement system. It's just, it's the way it is. And But we can continue this conversation when we come back, um, talk a little bit more about the commercial market and commercial item contracting. And just, and I think one of the things too is the challenges of the workforce. And we'll talk a little bit about that. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is Executive Vice President and General Counsel of the Coalition for Government Procurement. We're, we, we're talking about where we are in the procurement system right now. And I know this is stuff we've talked about in the past, but I think we are truly at an inflection point. And this is kind of spurred on by Major General Cameron Holtz, uh, head of acquisition at the, in the Air Force, a powerful presentation he made at the World Government Contracting Pricing Summit out in California back in June, um, talking about, you know, the current state of the acquisition system and, you know, the implicate, you know, the, the challenges. And I think he talked about the opportunities that were there to improve, you know, the performance and the imperative, the fundamental national security imperative to improve the important um, uh, the performance of the procurement system. And, you know, Tom, we, we started talking about commercial item contracting. We talked about the growth of clauses and, st- and whatnot. I think there's also growth in, you know, data collection um, that is an issue for companies um, in the private sector. And much of the data is data that the government already has in its possession, and it's, but it doesn't manage it well. So it's asking, you know, companies to provide it. And that's at a cost. Uh, of course. Um, and it also is at a compliance cost and compliance brings risk. And, you know, so there's a risk dynamic to that. Um, but the other thing is just in terms of the time it takes to do things in the process, I also wanted to talk a little bit about the workforce and the imperative of, you know, supporting the acquisition workforce, because one of the things that I've come to see or view is that there's a there's a lack of understanding generally in the acquisition workforce about how the private sector operates or how, you know, for-profit organizations operate in the world 
real world, what margins mean, especially for small businesses and the costs associated. They don't have the margins or the resources in many cases, you know, they, yeah, it, and just understanding that could help the whole system be more efficient if the workforce were up to snuff on, you know, just understanding the economics, the commercial market, and how businesses operate. Do you share that view? I think to, I think to a great extent, you're correct. Um, you know, teeing off um, how you closed the last segment, we are, we have a slow system, we have a costly system, but it is the best formulation of a slow and cost system, uh, costly system that you could have. And, and so, so when you start from that, you say, um, that the the government's personnel, the people who are implementing this, to a great extent, have to have an understanding of the cycles of business. They, you know, the best example I think is in the um, equitable adjustment scenario. Um, you had leadership. the inflation one. Yes, talking about EPA clause and inflation. Yes. Yeah, where the. Um, the leadership um, of an agency came out and said, look, we're in a, a unique time here. We know uh, that the constrained supply chain is having a, an impact on our industrial base. We're going to waive certain re- restrictions like the number of e- EPA changes you can submit. We're going to uh, allow, we're going to try and expedite the process. Then that filters down <laughs> to the, to the implementation level and we have people taking longer on their clauses than they are um, to uh, uh, otherwise, if we didn't have the system. I have, uh, have an anecdote I could share, but I don't want to embarrass the person. But I can tell you that um, to give you a sense of how long some changes have, been, uh, have taken, uh, I know of one individual uh, who with his wife conceived a child and brought the child to birth in the, in the time frame. And there are clauses, there are change clauses still waiting to be you adjudicated. Mean modification, price modification. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, still waiting longer than it took. Longer than, you created a new life. <laughs> the, created a new life so you, before. You, you can bring birth to a human being faster than you can get your price change implemented that i mean there's there is a breakdown and 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 you know going you know further on this um you have um a scenario where where your contracting officers are looking at the same sets of rules and implementing them differently depending on where their their office is located that is that's devastating because then you're forcing companies, especially small companies, to have this kind of intelligence uh, on a national scale, depending on where their contract is being administered, to understand the the quirks or the changes that are going to take place when they submit contract modifications or what have you. Now, okay, so you're saying it's just an administrative pain in the neck, but remember, we're in short supply uh, chains. We're in a high inflation period. These companies need their cash flow to stay afloat. And the government ostensibly needs these companies, correct, to access their goods and services to fulfill the government's mission. If you're going to have a system that is, 
you know, kind of turning into, I wouldn't say it's the Wild West, but it's getting a little erratic out there for these vendors, then it's going to be a problem all around. It has economic consequences for these companies, and it has performance consequences for the government if they don't have access to the materials they need. This doesn't, you know, oftentimes when we have these discussions, people think in very, very big terms. They think of systems and rockets and everything. You know, the government still needs toilet paper. The government still needs the basics, you know, to keep things going. And it, when you're hurting vendors at that level, um, you, you have to say, what are yeah. we doing to our mission fulfillment? Right. And we're not talking about here about, you know, and let's be clear, it's not about, you know, it should all go the industry's way. You know, it is a negotiation of pricing. But the issue, but what people don't, I, don't, I mean, there's clearly not a sensitivity, at least at the working level in a lot of cases, I don't think. And I don't blame anybody. I think it's a question of training and education for the workforce. So that literally, it could, you know, in this current cycle, and again, granted, it has, we haven't been in a situation like this for 40 years, but literally for some companies on their contracts, they're losing hundreds of thousands of dollars a week mm-hmm. based on volume because the costs for the product that they're selling to the government, the, the acquisition cost has gotten higher than the actual contract price. That's right. I mean, that's, that's unsustainable. And if that's large businesses have those challenges, you can't imagine a small business dealer on the schedules who can't get a price increase because they're being asked to provide all kinds of additional information, potentially beyond what is reasonable to justify a price increase just a sense of urgency in the context of the current economic situation would be helpful. And that's how you lose people from working in the federal, in the federal space, people exit the federal space. Cause they just can't, it's not sustainable for them. They can't get, you know, their price increase. And well, again, go ahead, Tom. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's a, you know, it, it, it this is almost like uh, the war of attrition, right? And in the war of attrition, the fat guy wins. So what are you saying? You're saying that the smaller the vendor, the worst impact this has. Uh, right. The worst exactly. And, and you, you, know, you think about this administration. We came out with an executive order that, said, that talked about small businesses. We're trying to, to really deal with uh, small disadvantaged businesses, businesses that um, – you know, have not been represented in the government space. Well, what does this do to those businesses when we can't implement at the speed we need to implement? So it, it, it's, it's a real problem, I think, for our, our marketplace um, because it's not about just, you know, a business going, you know, going up, belly up or just leaving. It's about government access to supplies. Yeah. And 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 there, so there's a mutual incentive here. There's an incentive to sell, and there's an incentive to access. And I just don't think there's alignment right now. Right. It's the, the customer, and I know GSA talks about the customer. The customer is the ultimate end user, but also GSA at its best viewed the contractors as a customer base as well. Someone they there. It's a market creating a market. That's what GSA does. And the more effective they are in engaging with the two, you know, players in the market, the buyers and, you know, the buyers and the sellers, the more competitive that market will be for everybody and be better. But anyway, so, but we're at the break time. When we come back, we'll continue our discussion. Let's think about some of the things that, you know, if we were king for a day, perhaps, 
you know, we would potentially do to try to enhance the system. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He's the Executive Vice President, General Counsel, Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guest today is Tom Sisti. He is Executive Vice President, General Counsel for the Coalition for Government Procurement. We've been talking about the current state of the procurement system and, you know, the current sort of point we're at is with the re-regulation, you know, the, you know, um, the, you know, the, the growth of process reporting and regulation across the program. And, you know, this segment, I wanted to talk about some ideas about how to address it. And I think one of the things I want to get your take on, because I think, you know, um, it's clearly whether it's, it's OTAs or commercial solutions opening authority at GSA and civilian agencies or OTAs at DOD and I think DOE, I don't know who else has authority there, um, or Na- is it NASA? I don't know. But whoever's got the OTA authority beyond DOD. But anyway, are we seeing a conscious effort to move transactions and important strategic things outside of the current procurement system? to try to better execute, you know, is that, is that, I mean, you can see the growth in OTAs at DOD in terms of, you know, year on spending it's in the, yeah, in the billions and billions of dollars now an increase every year and the and the dollars going to OTAs. Is that, what are your thoughts on that? Just going outside the system, finding tools and mechanisms outside the system. I don't know if it's a conscious like subversion, <laughs> but but there's there's that old economic That's perversion. It's avoidance. <laughs> it's avoidance. Right. right. Well, right. And I was going to say this adage that uh, if things if a if a process or a thing can't go on, it won't. Right. Eventually, people. It's kind of like squeezing a balloon. The air looks for someplace else to go, or the system breaks. So, um, the, in this case, I mean, people are utilizing it, and we we're seeing ever-changing rules coming out in statute where first it was prototyping, then it was, okay, we can go to full production after prototyping um, if you ran a competitive procedure up front for the, the OTA or the OT. And um, and so I, I think uh, our friend uh, John mentioned this a while back, and it's true, that something's missing. Yes. Okay. John, something's yeah. missing in the system. Uh, we didn't account for it because when you have these, these um, one-offs, these, uh, these uh, uh, diversions around the system, they, they happen for a reason. And, and to me, uh, there are two things that would be extremely helpful for the system. One, to have consistency of practice. If a rule says one thing, the, what that rule says should apply equally, consistently, and across the spectrum of contracting so that a vendor coming into the market sees the rule and says, that's how we do it. And two, there should be a, a, a substantial reduction. I can't believe, you know, this goes back, we've talked about this in the past. This goes back deep into the last century with all the Blue Ribbon Commissions. We have, we, our rules are duplicative. 
and and we need we need to call that out. I mean, that was the primary motivation for the FAR back in the eighties. And then you have to say, what are, what about the quantity of these rules in the context of commercial items? Do we need the level of oversight that you would apply on a more complex procurement? I think those three things have to be answered. And I, I, again, I think uh, what General Holt provided at that summit was outstanding because he really raises the our whole funding problem, too. Right. Uh, right, that's the that. funding part of it. So to your point, I think, you know, use, you know, going back and, you know, in a certain sense, making commercial item contracting commercial again. Yes. Yeah, that might be, a, you know, a place to start. Um, I also think I'm intrigued by the idea, and I think it's going to be very important how GSA rolls out, um, you know, the next iteration of the e-commerce platform, you know, yes. contract, right? Because at the end of the day, that's, you know, if they open it up and um, um, bring in, you know, greater competition to reflect across the market, um, you just generally there's opportunities there, you know, at the end of the day, you know, because you can see there's a difference there fundamentally, right, in terms of companies, um, you know, having to go through GSA, to try to get, you know, to their inflation driven price adjustment and it takes months and they lose money on an item versus a platform where they're able to adjust their price to market realities almost instantaneously. So where are companies that eventually, to your point, that things will work up to a a point or when they stop working, people look for the other channel. Yeah. At what point does that become more attractive to companies and companies either want to sell through a platform or want to be on there themselves selling, you know, under their own, you know, e-commerce contract. Right. Um, or they go or companies sell open market, in which case the government's just getting it's getting no benefit of pre-negotiation. That, that's not true. Too. Screening yeah. a product. Yeah. They're not getting a, a validation that it's trade agreements act compliant. And by American compliant, you're not getting you're not getting any validation that it's. But at the same time, you know what the diff, what the thing is there, Tom. Let's be let's because it goes back to the point of this whole discussion. They can get the product. They can use their credit card and That's buy it open market. They can get the product. Whereas under the contract, it may not be under contract anymore because the company doesn't have any incentive to have it on contract. Right, right. If I'm a buyer, my goal is uh, is to deliver for my internal customer, right? And to get a, a fair and reasonable price, uh, and if they, I see it in another venue, and I can just get it and get and meet the mission need, I'm not I'm not thinking in terms of the pre-screening that goes on in some of these contracts. But but that's important. I and you know talking about e-commerce, I have a feeling that that is the next um, the next challenge for it is that the, you need a single point of contact uh, for the items that are being purchased. Do you know what I'm saying? To assure that they're cyber secure and things like that. So it, it becomes the platform provider rather than uh, worrying, having to screen out. I, I'm not sure about that. I just, I think it's, I mean, I, I, it'll, I'm just saying it's going to be interesting to see what GSA does with the next, you know, they've had the pilot contract. They've made, you know, they're planning on doing a follow on procurement. I think that's all positive. Yeah, I think, and I think there's opportunities. I think, Compliance is a real issue. You point that out. The question will be 
how do you mirror the commercial? Here's an opportunity just to mirror the commercial market, but at the same time, potentially address, you know, what are the fundamental things that, you know, the government cares about? And maybe it's three or four, right? At mm-hmm. the end of the day, cyber, you know, country of origin, what, you know, right. you know maybe efficiency, you know, EP or something. I don't know, yeah. but maybe, you know. And then it's more limited. Then boom, you're back. You're home in a certain sense, back to what commercial item contracting under FASA was supposed to be, right? right. But it's the electronic version, perhaps. Who knows? Right. We'll right. see how it all plays out. But anyway, hey, Tom, you know, we're up at the end of the show. Um, and I'm glad we got to talk about some ideas about things to do, whether it's getting back to commercial item contracting, you know, more flexibility in funding, you know, yeah. Those type of things. I think also there's an opportunity to look at best practices for proposal preparation. And I mean that from the government perspective, how much information the government asks contractors to provide and whether or not there can be, you know, streamlining of that process as well to try to reduce costs because bid and proposal is a limited pool. There's all kinds of other things, and I'm sure we'll continue to talk about those in the future. And uh, thank my guest today, Tom Sisti. He's Executive Vice President, General Counsel at the Coalition for Government Procurement. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One.